John, chapter 13, verses 1 through 30. Verses 1 through 3. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that the hour was come that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that his father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God, and went to God. Burkett notes, In this chapter is recorded the history of our Savior's washing his disciples' feet, an action full of humility and condescension, and propounded to his followers' imitation. The circumstance of the time is here noted, when this act was done, namely at the feast of the Passover, when the time of our Savior's departure was at hand. And having constantly and immutably loved his own, he expressed the permanency of his love towards them by this action of his, in washing their feet. Here note how Christ chose the time of the Jewish Passover to suffer in, that he might prove himself to be the substance of that type, that he was the true Paschal Lamb, who by the sacrifice of his death did atone divine displeasure and take away the sins of the world. Observe, too, the means which the wisdom of God permitted to bring the Lord of life to his ignominious death, and that was the treason and perfidiousness of one of his own disciples, Judas Iscariot, where observe one, the person betraying, Judas. Judas, a professor and a preacher, Judas, an apostle, being one of the twelve, whom Christ had chosen out of all the world to be his dearest friends. Can we wonder to find friends unfriendly or unfaithful towards us when our Savior had a traitor in his own house? Observe, too, the heinousness of Judas's sin in betraying Christ. He betrayed Christ Jesus, a man, Christ Jesus, his master, Christ Jesus, his maker. The first was murder, the second treason. Lord, it is no strange and uncommon thing for the vilest of sins and most hard impieties to be acted upon by persons making the most imminent profession of thy holy religion. Observe 3. What hand the devil had in the sufferings of our Savior, he put it into Judas's heart to betray Christ. That is, he did suggest and inject such thoughts into his mind, which Judas instantly closed with. The devil, being a spirit, has quick access to spirits and can instill his suggestions into them. As Christ did breathe upon his disciples and they received the Holy Ghost and were filled with the Spirit, so Satan breathes filthy suggestions into the spirit of men and fills them with all manner of wickedness, even with the spirit of hell itself. The devil put into the heart of Judas to betray him. Verses 4 and 5. He rises from supper and laid aside his garments, and took a towel, and girded himself. After that he poureth water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Burkett notes, Observe here the admirable humility and great self-denial of our Lord and Master. He rises from supper whilst his disciples sat still, and he that came in the form of a servant performs all the offices of the meanest servant to his disciples. He lays aside his upper garments, he girds himself with a towel, pours water into a basin, and begins to wash and wipe their feet, which lay out behind them as they leaned at the table, all which was a most servile employment. Learn hence that the wonderful humility of Jesus Christ inclined him to do the meanest offices of service unto his people, even to become a servant to them 
in the day of his humiliation. And though now glorified in heaven, he retains the same compassionate heart towards them as when here on earth, thereby instructing us that it is our duty in whatever station providence shall place us in the world to stoop to the lower offices of love and service towards our fellow brethren. Lord, thou hast left the most amazing instance of self-denial for our encouragement and example. Question, but how far doth this example bind us? Answer, it does not oblige to the individual act, but to follow the reason of the example. That is, after Christ's example, we ought to be ready to perform the lowest and meanest offices of love and service to one another. Verses 6 through 10. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter said unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not, save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all, for he knew who should betray him. Therefore he said, Ye are not all clean. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, how Simon Peter refuses to admit of such a condescending act from Christ, his Lord and Master, as the washing of his feet. Lord, thou shalt never wash my feet. It's a sinful humility to refuse the offered favors of Christ, because we're unworthy to receive them. Though we are not worthy of Christ and of his love, yet Christ is worthy of us and of our faith. Observe, two, our Savior's reply to Peter's refusal. One, he tells him that there was more in it than the bare act of washing did at first sight import, and that he should know hereafter what he did not understand now. What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Learn hence, one, that the servants of God themselves are oft times much to seek and cannot apprehend and understand at present the acting and dealings of God with them. They understand not either the intent or the event of God's dispensations. Two, that although God's dealing with his children and people are for a while in the dark and are not presently made known, yet there will come a time for the clearing and evidencing of them when they shall understand that all his dispensations were in mercy to them. The second part of our Savior's reply to St. Peter follows, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. As if Christ had said, Peter, this external act of mine in washing thy feet doth signify something farther, and import my washing of thy soul from the guilt and defilement of sin, without which thou canst neither have interest in me nor communion with me. Learn hence, one, that so universal is the pollution of sin that every soul stands in need of washing. Two, that Christ washes all that have a part and interest in him, both from the guilt and pollution of all their sins. Observe three, that St. Peter, now understanding better what was meant by this outward washing, namely that it did signify and represent the defilement of sin, he is so far from refusing that Christ should wash his feet that he offers hands and head and all to be washed by him. Lord, not my feet only, etc. Learn hence that so thoroughly sensible are the saints of the filthiness and pollution of sin that they desire nothing more than an inward, thorough, and prevailing purification of their whole man by the blood and spirit of the Lord Jesus.
Observe for our Savior's reply to St. Peter's last request. He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, plainly alluding to the custom of those countries where going abroad barefoot or with thin sandals covering only a small part of their feet. They had frequent occasion to wash their feet, but need not to wash their whole bodies. In like manner, the saints and servants of God, who are already washed and cleansed by the blood of Christ from the guilt of their sins, and have a real work of renovation and sanctification begun in them by the Spirit of Christ, they ought to be daily purging and purifying their affections and actions, and laboring daily after further measures and degrees of sanctification. Learn hence, one, that the holiest, the wisest, and the best of saints, while here in the world of sin and temptation, to stand in need of a daily washing by repentance, and according to their renewed and repeated acts of sin. Two, that all justified persons are in God's account clean persons. Ye are clean, but not all. That is, you are justified and pardoned, sanctified and cleansed, all of you, excepting Judas, whose heart was known to Christ, though his hypocrisy was hid from the disciples. Verses 12 through 16. So after he had washed their feet, and had taken his garments, and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? You call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. Burkett notes, In these words, our Savior declares to his disciples his intention and design in washing of their feet, namely to teach them by his example the duty of humility, that as he had performed that act of abasement towards them, so should they be ready to perform all offices of love and humble condescension one towards another. Behold, I have given you an example that you should do as I have done unto you. Learn thence that humility and mutual condescension among the members and ministers of Jesus Christ, is a most necessary grace and duty, which the Son of God not only taught by his doctrine, but recommended and enforced by his example. Observe farther the argument which Christ makes use of to press the imitation of example upon them, and that is drawn from the titles given to him by his disciples. Ye call me Master and Lord, and so I am. Now servants ought to imitate their masters and subjects to obey their Lord and King. Christ is a master to teach and direct, a Lord to govern and protect. As he is a master, we are to learn in his school. As he is a Lord, we are to serve him in his house. He must be submitted to as a prince, as well as relied upon as a savior. It is in vain to expect salvation from him if we do not yield subjection to him. Another argument which our Lord makes use of to press his disciples to imitate his example is drawn from his dignity and superiority over them. The servant is not greater than his Lord. As if Christ had said, Though you, my disciples, are to have a very high and honorable station in the gospel church, yet let not this swell you with pride, but be ye mutually condescending towards each other, remembering you are but servants to myself and ought to be so to one another and the servant is not greater than his Lord. Learn hence, 1. That whatever dignity Christ confers upon his servants and officers, 
yet he is over them all, superior to them and above them. Two, that the consideration of Christ's dignity and his minister's meanness ought to keep their minds humble and lowly, and far from affecting superiority over their brethren. The servant is not greater than his Lord, nor he that is sent greater than he that sent him. Verse 17. If ye know these things, happy are ye if you do them. Burkett notes, Our Lord here intimates unto us these two things. One, the necessity of knowledge in order unto practice. Two, the necessity of practice in order unto happiness. A man may know the will of God indeed, and not do it. But he can never do the will of God acceptably, and not know it. The knowledge of God's will and our duty is necessary to the practice of it. The knowledge of our duty and the practice of it may be, and too often are, separated. But the practice of religion and doing what we know to be our duty is the only way to true happiness. Learn thence, one, that Christ does not approve of a blind obedience in his people, but requires that their practice and obedience be founded upon understanding and knowledge. Two, that the first care of those that will be Christ's disciples and followers must be this, with all seriousness to apply themselves to the knowledge of their master's will. Three, that next to the knowledge of our duty, our first and chief care must be to practice everything that we understand and know to be our duty. Four, that a right knowledge and practice of our duty will certainly make us happy. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. Verse 18. I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Burkett notes, If the choosing spoken of here be understood of eternal election, a choosing to everlasting life, then it affords a strong argument to prove Christ to be God. Thus, he that is author of eternal election is God, but Christ is such. I know whom I have chosen. Consider Christ as God, so we are chosen by him. Consider him as mediator, and so we are chosen in him. If the choosing here be meant of choosing to the work of the apostleship, then our Savior tells his disciples that it need not seem strange to them that he chose one of them to be an apostle, who he knew would prove a traitor. For hereby that scripture prophecy, Psalm 41.9, would be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Which, though it was literally spoken of Ahithophel's treachery against David, yet it was prophetically spoken of Judas's treason against Christ, and the expression of lifting up the heel is metaphorical, taken from a fed beast that kicks against his master. Learn hence that Christ did, as his followers do daily, suffer not only from open enemies, but from bosom and familiar friends. Lord, how many are there in the world who by profession lift up their hand unto thee, who yet by treason and rebellion lift up their heel against thee. Verse 19. Now I tell you before it come, that when it come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. Burkett notes, Here another argument occurs to prove the divinity of our blessed Savior from his foreknowledge of Judas's treason, the person who, the time when, and the place where, were all known to Christ. I tell you before it come to pass. 
The argument lies thus. He that foresaw the future actions of men and infallibly foreknew the future events and issues of things is certainly God. But Christ did this, therefore he is really God. And he tells us here that for this very reason he foretold now the treason of Judas. Now I tell you before that when it come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. What he doth he mean? What he could foretell so many things to come, which did not depend upon necessary but contingent causes only? This he was not a mere man, surely, for he knows not what shall be on the morrow, but must be real God, because he knew all things not by revelation, as the prophets knew things to come, but by immediate inspection and simple intuition, so that we may say with Peter, Lord, thou knowest all things, and because thou knowest all things, thou art God. Verse 20. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I send, receiveth me, and he that receiveth me, receiveth him that sent me. Burkett notes, lest the apostles should think that for the treachery of one of them, they should all become odious and abominable to the whole world, our Savior encourages and gives them assurance that there should be those who would receive them, and that he would take it as kindly as if they had received himself. He that receiveth you receiveth me. Learn hence that it is a sweet encouragement of the ministers of Christ unto the faithful discharge of their duty, that Christ and the Father account that the respect paid to the ministers of the gospel is paid to themselves, and on the contrary, that all contempt cast upon them reflects upon themselves. He that receiveth you receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. Verses 21 and 22. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit, and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one upon another, doubting of whom he spake. Burkett notes, Oh, what an astonishing word was this! One shall betray me. One of my disciples shall betray me. Yea, one of you, my disciples and apostles, shall do it. Well might they look one upon another with sorrow and amazement to hear that their master should die, that he should die by treason, and that the traitor should be one of themselves. Yet do they not censure one another, but suspect themselves, saying, Master, is it I? Not, Master, is it Judas? Learn hence, one, that it is possible for secret wickedness to lurk, yea, for the greatest villainy to lodge in the hearts of professors, in whose conversation appeareth nothing that may give just suspicion to others. Learn, too, that it is both the duty and property of the disciples of Christ to have so much candor and brotherly love as not harshly to censure and judge one another, but to hope the best of others, and to fear the worst of themselves. Verses 23 through 30. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him, that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. Then, lying on Jesus' breast, saith unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. 
Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. For some of them thought, because Judas had the bag, that Jesus had said unto him, Buy those things that we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. He then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. Burkett notes, observe here, one, the character given of St. John, the beloved disciple. He leaned on Christ's bosom. That is, he had the most intimate converse with Christ, one whom Christ treated with greater freedom and familiarity than the rest, and one that knew more of his heart than most of his disciples. We commonly call a very near friend a bosom friend. Learn that although Christ had an endeared love for his disciples and followers, yet there were degrees in Christ's own love, and he had a familiarity with some disciples beyond others, whilst he was here upon earth, even as now in heaven. Though his heart be towards all his children here on earth, yet he is pleased to let out more kind manifestations of himself and more sensible evidences of his love towards some than towards others. John was the disciple that lay in Jesus' bosom. Observe, too, the way which our Savior took to discover Judas to the rest of his disciples, not by naming him, but by giving him a sop, partly because he would not give Judas any provocation by mentioning his name, and partly because this sign of eating the sop was most agreeable to the prophetical prediction. Psalm 41, 9. Mine own familiar friend, who did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. Observe 3. The time when Judas received the sop, and the consequence that followed upon his receiving of it. It was at that time when he had, with an unbelieving heart and an unthankful spirit, been eating the Passover, which was a type of Christ. Now Satan enters into him, that is, takes fuller possession of him, and he gives himself up more freely and fully to the devil's conduct and suggestion. Satan gets possession of wicked men gradually and by degrees, not all at once. The only way to be safe is to resist the beginnings of sin, for when Satan once gets footing, it's hard to prevent a more full possession. Observe 4. The place where Judas now was, namely at Bethany, some miles from Jerusalem, and it was now night, yet so intent he was upon the devil's work that away he trudges to Jerusalem, and at that time of night repairs to the high priests and sells his Savior into their hands. Oh, what a warmth and zeal was here in the devil's cause! Men given over by God and possessed by Satan are so restless and unwearied in sin that neither by day nor by night can they cease from the contrivance and execution of it.